0: Welcome to Austin Chapel. My name is Stephen Montgomery. I'm the lead pastor here. I'm so glad that each and every one of you are here today. We're going to be back in the book of Esther today. We've been taking a lot of breaks in Esther. Have you guys noticed that? That was unintentional, but we've had to take some breaks. But well, we're back in the book of Esther today. I just have to warn you guys, though. We're going to cover a whole three chapters. Oh no! Right? Gosh, we have to do some reading. I haven't read three chapters since I was in high school. <laughs> uh, no, just kidding around, but. We're going to be reading through three chapters, and we're getting to this point in the story, really, where, um, as I joked about earlier in the series, that the book of Esther is kind of this Persian soap opera. And we're getting to the part now where we're really going to see that kind of unfold. It's dramatic. It's got some crazy highs and lows. It's got some irony to it. I'm really excited to jump into this portion of the book. Um, But I want to recap, everybody, if you maybe haven't been here for all of them or any of them, I just want to recap a little bit on where we're at in the book of Esther and what's going on. So, the book of Esther falls towards the end of the Old Testament, after the Israelites were freed from captivity by the Babylonians. And they were freed, uh, the Persians took over, they defeated the Babylonians, they freed the Jews, and allowed them to go back to their homeland if they wanted to, and many actually still ended up staying in, in the Persian areas, and so we find this this Girl Esther, um, we find this guy Mordecai, who um, Mordecai is um, really adopted Esther to be his daughter, and the King Xerxes through this whole drama ends up divorcing his wife Queen Vashti, and it's because of some disobedience and uh, basically he was asking her to come and kind of flaunt her beauty before a bunch of drunk guys, and she didn't want to do that, and so he basically divorces her and looks for a new queen, and Esther is chosen as this new queen. But what's been going on kind of on the side is this kind of battle between Mordecai and Haman that we're going to see here. Haman is this guy who's been lifted up. He's been... Uh, Promoted to the second most powerful person in the kingdom. So, Haman's got this big title, this big promotion. And he's kind of getting to his head a little bit. And there's this guy, Mordecai, Esther's um, adopted you know, father. And he doesn't want to bow to Haman and show him any respect. Because Haman is a Agagite. And the Agagites and the Israelites really hated each other because the Agagites had been attacking Israel really ever since they were freed from Egypt. And so this really racial and ethnic um, hatred goes all the way back, generation, generations and generations. And so Mordecai doesn't want to show respect to Haman, and Haman hates the fact that Mordecai won't bow to him, won't show him respect. And Mordecai um, wasn't doing this because it was... A literal worship. This was really simply just a bowing of respect. And so he really should have just shown the respect that was deserved to Haman's position. But he did not do so. And Haman gets really angry. And he devises this plan to instead of just killing Mordecai, he decides he wants to annihilate all of his people. And so he goes to the king and basically argues that if they kill them all, they'll get all their treasure and all their wealth and they'll be able to take it in for the king. And it'll be a good thing to get rid of these disrespectful, disobedient Israelites and we'll get all their riches. And so the king goes for it and he, he basically signs off on it by using his signet ring. And Haman's plan is working, everything is going so well for Haman. And not looking so good for the Jews. It's not looking so good for Esther and Mordecai and all of their people throughout the land. They're about to be annihilated. Well, we kind of pick up here in chapter 5 after Mordecai has asked Esther to please go to the king and do something. Try to save your people. And that's where we pick up in chapter 5 today. We're going to be starting in chapter 5 verse 1. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes. And stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters. While the king was sitting on the royal throne inside the throne room opposite the entrance to the palace. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. Now Esther is the queen. She is one of many wives that the king has. But she is the main queen. Like, she's supposed to be the trophy wife, the one who's going to wear the crown. But even she cannot go into the palace and go before his throne without his permission. In fact, anybody that would go in there without him approving it would be put to death. Even the queen. So she's actually intimidated by him. She's actually scared of her own husband. And so she's actually fearful here, standing there at the entrance, seeing if he will approve her. See if that she's allowed to come in. And so he approves, he, he puts out his scepter, and she comes in, she touches the scepter, and she's allowed in. What a relationship that is, right? Um, a few guys in here are probably like, yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm sure no one in here is like, yeah, my wife needs approval before she comes in the house. <laughs> that would be a messed up marriage for sure. Uh, but that's what they have, is a dysfunctional marriage. Um, and so Esther is scared of her husband, but she feels that she must go and fight for her people because they're about to be annihilated. And so we pick up here in verse 3. And the king said to her, What is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given to you, even to half of my kingdom. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I've prepared for the king. Then the king said, Bring Haman quickly. So that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared. And when they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. Then Esther answered, My wish and my request is... If you have found favor in the sight of the king, and if it please the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them, and tomorrow I will do as the king has said. So Esther's like, hey king, I want you to come to this little party that I've set up for you and Haman, the most powerful king in the world and his his right-hand man, Haman. I want you guys to come to this special little party, this little banquet that I've prepared for you. And so he's like, okay, that sounds good. And so they're eating, and he's like, wow, this was a great meal. We're drinking wine. What a great little party, special little dinner party this was. And he's impressed, and he says, Esther, uh, what is it that you want? Anything, up to half of my kingdom. Now, this was kind of a slang term to show generosity that kings would do. No king would actually give up half of his kingdom. It was really just a term they kind of threw out like, I'm going to be generous here with you. If you actually asked for half the kingdom, he would say, no, most likely. They were not going to do that, but this is a slang term. And and so he says, up to half of my kingdom, I'm going to be generous with you is what he's saying. And, And what does Esther do? She doesn't say, so could you not annihilate my people? <laughs> she, doesn't, she doesn't say, hey, would you mind not killing me, my family, my friends, and, and everyone I know? Uh, no, she says, hey, how about we have another party? All right, she's speaking his language. As we learned in chapter one, Xerxes loved to party. I mean, the Persians and all of the leaders, they really knew how to party. There's nobody in this room that could party quite like the Persians. They would throw six-month-long parties at times. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine a six-month long party? That's insane. And so Esther is being wise here. Because she knows that what she's going to ask is a big deal. And he's already signed off on this. And kings can't go back on their word. The Persians viewed their kings as divine, which means that you can never be wrong. And so to basically say you're wrong is a serious matter. And so... She's like, you know what, let's have another party. You know, sometimes I think that we like to jump the gun, don't we? We get fearful, and so we're like, i got to react really fast. i got to make something happen. i got to fix this. And a lot of times what we really need to do is sit back, think a little bit, pray a little bit, right, and see what the Lord would have us do because a lot of times we just want to jump. And now there are obviously times where you have to make a decision very quickly, right? If Lincoln is running into the street, I don't go, let me think about what I should do here. (laughs) Right, there are times where there's fear and the only response is a quick response. And so we must jump out and I must grab my son and and tell him, hey, you don't go down the street, (laughs) never again. Uh, But there are other times where we think it's urgent, but it's not. You ever feel that? You ever experience that? Sometimes we're like, I, really, I, need it to happen. I need to happen. I need to make something happen. I need to make this go away. I need to fix this. And, and what we do is oftentimes make a decision out of fear, and we make the wrong decision. And if we had just taken a step back, thought about the circumstance, viewed it from a different angle, we would have maybe come out with um, a better plan that maybe would work. And we do this out of fear. Other times we do it when we're excited, right? You ever get like a cool idea, and then you go and you just tell everyone? You're like, this is my idea, this is my idea. And then all of a sudden you're like, actually, that's not going to work. And then you're like, man, now everybody thinks I'm going to do it. I'm not going to do it. You ever been there? I've been there so many times. Like when I get excited, I just want to jump the gun. Like I'm going to go do it. I'm going to make it happen. I do that with church planning stuff, and my leadership team has to bear with that. <laughs> like, uh, like, hey, we're going to do this. And then it's like, well, I'm there, but we're not going to do that. <laughs> and if I just stepped back and prayed about it and thought a little more, oftentimes um, it would have been for the best. And so Esther is really wise here. She could have just ran into that court and been like, please, please don't kill my people. And it may not have worked. So instead what she does is she thinks. She had been fasting. And she's like, I'm going I'm to speak his language. We're going to throw some parties. And so she throws a party. And at the end of the party, he's so impressed. And he's like, up to half my kingdom. She could have said, all right, don't kill me and my people. But she doesn't. She says, hey, let's do another party. And so let's continue here. Verse 9 of chapter 5. And Haman went out after this party. Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he he neither rose nor trembled before him. He was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home. And he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, and all the promotions which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above all the officials and servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther, let no one... But me, come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. Then his wife Sarish and all his friends said to him, Let the gallows fifty cubits high be made, and in the morning tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king to the feast." This idea pleased Haman, and he had the gallows made. There's a lot here. Haman leaves this party feeling so special. Like, he thinks, like, my life is really good right now. He doesn't know what Esther's actual plan is. He's just like, look how awesome I am. Like, I get invited to the, like, the most um, inclusive, like, what am I saying? Exclusive. There we go. Sorry. Exclusive party ever thrown just me and the king and the and the queen. How awesome is that? And he's so excited, but he's, he's full of joy. And then he sees Mordecai standing there. And he's like, he ruins everything. That guy right there. You ever had somebody in your life like that? Anybody? No? Maybe? If you're being honest a little bit, right? You had somebody in your life, you're like, work is great, except for when he's here. <laughs> right? Like, I love community group, except for when he's here. <laughs> I don't feel that way about anybody. Uh, <laughs> ever uh (laughs) just kidding uh no but we do that sometimes we let somebody bug us just a little too much don't we well that's what mordecai has really become this thorn in the side for haman and he's like i can't enjoy any of this while mordecai's still alive and it ruins everything for him what's interesting is mordecai knows haman's plot to kill them all and he's still not bowing paying respect and he's just still being stubborn which i find fascinating uh mordecai I mean, he is, in, in some sense, one of the heroes of the book. But in another sense, he just makes a lot of mistakes in this book, which we can learn from. I mean, he should, at this point, go, okay, Haman, I'm sorry. Like, I should have respected your position. I should have, you know, bowed. I should have showed you some honor. I'm sorry. Will you please just not kill us? <laughs> Would you please just not, you know, go on this exterminating trip to destroy all of us? But he doesn't do that. He's still stubborn about it. Their hatred for each other, even their hatred for each other's people groups, goes deep, and they really, really are both going to be very stubborn, even even Mordecai. And so he goes on, he's bragging to his wife and his friends about how he's got all these promotions, and how great he is, and also, I just love this, just culturally so culturally so funny, he says, and I've got a lot of sons, <laughs> you know, like everybody likes to brag on their kids, but like, They really like to brag on the number of sons they had, right? I've never even thought about bragging about that. Like, I've got one. You've got none. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. Oh, he's got two. Now I feel bad. Uh, Just cultures are very different. It's interesting. So he's bragging away. He's talking to his friends and family. He's like, but but Mordecai ruins it all. And they're like, all right, let's, let's, let's hang him on the gallows 50 cubits high. This would be 75 feet. That's a really tall post to erect, isn't it? It's like... Get that thing seven stories tall. Can you imagine that? They're like, we want everybody to see him. It doesn't matter where you're standing in this city. We want you to see that Mordecai was hung. And it's a pretty little crafty little plan they have here. Let's build it and then we'll get it all ready. And then you'll say, all right, king, can we just hang this guy Mordecai? We'll come back to the gallows and, and talk more about that here in a minute. But let's see how this goes for Haman. In chapter 6 it says, on that night the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, that they were read, and they were read before the king. And it was found how Mordecai had told about Bithana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who had guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Asherah. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? The king's young man who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young man told him, Haman is there standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights in? to honor. And Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. And let them lead him on a horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him. Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. If you look here, the king is not able to sleep. And I don't believe this is a coincidence. God is keeping him up, I believe. This is not a coincidence. God keeps him up. And so he can't sleep that night. Something's on his mind. He's stressed, whatever it is, but he cannot sleep. And so he's like, all right, bring, bring the chronicles, bring the, the, these writings and read them to me. And then he, as they're reading to him, they, hear, they start reading about this guy, and he hears of Mordecai who had saved the king's life in the previous chapter, as we read. There was two of his servants, the king's servants, that wanted to assassinate the king, and Mordecai overheard it, reported it to Esther so she could tell the king, and by doing so, they saved the king's life. And he's like, so what did we do for that guy? And they're like, actually, we didn't, we didn't do anything for him. He's like, how could we not do something? He saved my life. How could we we not do something for him? And so now it's morning and he's like, we got to do something. Who's here? Who can do something for me? And Haman walks in. And Haman's got this plan to kill the very same person, Mordecai. The king's about to glorify him and and give him this special honor. And And Haman is there to kill Mordecai. And so Haman walks in and Haman does what? He makes an assumption. He says, he must be talking about me. What would I like to have done for me? right? Now, what's interesting, is the Bible tells us that we should think that way about others, right? That we should do unto others as we would want done to us. Right? That's the principle. That's the, the golden rule. How would you treat them? And so we oftentimes are so busy thinking about ourselves, we don't think about others. So Haman's thinking about himself, like, right, who else could it be? Who else is he going to honor? We should just put him in these royal robes and, and kind of parade him around the city so that he'll deserve all this honor and, and glory and credit. But he doesn't know who the king's talking about. It's dangerous to make assumptions sometimes, isn't it? Have you ever made an assumption and then it led to your embarrassment? Anybody? I have done that. I've made assumptions that led to my embarrassment. Um, Sometimes we make negative assumptions about others. And they turn out to not be true. Or other times we make positive assumptions about ourselves, And then they turn out to not be true. Making assumptions can oftentimes be um, embarrassing or even dangerous for us. Um, I think we tend to make assumptions way too often, don't we? I think we can learn something here is that assumptions can be dangerous. Let me tell you just kind of a lighthearted one. Um, as you guys, many of you know, my son, Lincoln, is, is he 20 months old now? Melissa? He's 20 months old. We're really good at keeping track. Um, we, yeah. uh, he's somewhere around that age. And Lincoln loves cars. I think it started probably when he was six months old. Him and I would sit on my front porch and we would sit there and he would watch the cars and he was fascinated by them. And then he started saying the word cars. It was like, I think his first or second word. I think he likes dogs and he likes cars, but he really likes cars. And so eventually he'd be sitting on the front porch and he'd be like, car, car, car. And then you know if you took my son to a parking lot. That's like taking him to a candy store. I'm not joking for a while. Like I'd pick him up, we get out of the car, we're in the parking garage, and he's just like, Car, 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 car. I'm like, yeah, uh-huh, car, car. Wow, yeah, you're so good at that. It's kind of getting annoying. <laughs> just car, car, car. He's so excited to see all these cars, and then he learned truck, and now he's like, Car, 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 truck, car, 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 truck. So can you guys guess what his favorite movie is? Cars. I don't even know how many times I've watched that movie now. It's it's too many to count. He just loves the movie Cars, right? And I'm glad that he likes Pixar movies because they're more bearable than a lot of the kids shows. Uh, so it, it's at least a more plausible, pleasant thing. I don't know. Anyways, so he loves watching Cars. And in Cars One, you got Lightning McQueen, right? He's kind of arrogant. He's the new Uh, He's the rookie, and he's been winning a lot, and so they're in this final race, the Piston Cup in the movie, and he's racing, 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 and and at one point, kind of his arrogance, he doesn't um, get his tires changed, and then right as he's about to approach the finish line, all of his tires pop, and so he's trying to get across the finish line, trying to get across the finish line, and the other two cars come across, and they all cross seemingly around the same time, and then they show a slow-mo clip, and Uh, Lightning McQueen and the other two cars had tied, and Lightning McQueen had only tied with him because he sticks his tongue out and gets it across the line at the same time the other two cars are crossing. But Lightning McQueen thinks he won. And as they're about to announce the winner of the race, they've got this curtain, and Lightning McQueen, right before they announce it, busts through the curtain because he assumed that he won. And then they're like, it's a three-way tie, and we're going to have another race just in between these three. And the other two cars roll out, and he's, what, embarrassed. Haman did the same thing. He made an assumption. Assumptions can be really dangerous, oftentimes for ourselves, because we get embarrassed. Um, Haman and Lightning McQueen made assumptions. I bet you didn't think I was going to be talking about Lightning McQueen this morning. And so... Haman makes this assumption. He says, you should just glorify this guy. And then this is where it just gets honestly funny. 6, verse 10. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew. I feel like he threw in Jew, like not unknowingly. Like he just kind of threw that in there. Mordecai, the Jew. (laughs) And so the king's like, Go and and do everything that you said that you wanted done for yourself. And I want you to go do that for Mordecai. This is the worst possible news for Haman. He thought everything was going so well for him. And just like that, it gets flipped. And now he has to go and honor Mordecai, the guy that wouldn't honor him. The guy that was being disrespectful to him. Now I got to go parade him around the city and say the king honors him and and delights in him this is crazy the king says leave out nothing that you have mentioned (laughs) poor haman right this poor racist hater (laughs) Uh, so haman took the robes and the horse and he dressed mordecai and led him through the square of the city proclaiming before him thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor can you imagine what kind of attitude he did that with? Like, how slow do you think he was, like, picking up that robe? Like, yeah, okay. <laughs> like, he's got to be so furious inside, so reluctant. But he can't dare not do what the king asked. He put to death. So he has to do this. This is the worst imaginable thing for him. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning, and with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh, and all his friends, everything that happened to him. Then his wise man and his wife Zerah said to him, If Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. Their whole tone changes. They're noticing that things aren't going so well. This plan might not work out after all. Let's continue here in verse 14. While they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So now he has to go to this party. You ever try to go to a party when you're really bummed out? Anybody? Isn't that the worst? Right? You ever been in a fight on your way to church? <laughs> and then you're like, hey, everyone, I'm doing so well. I'm so glad to see you all. But inside you're just like, Ugh. Imagine that times like a hundred That is what Haman is feeling here. Everything in his life is being ruined, and now he has to go to a party and pretend it's all okay. So the king and Haman went into the feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, What is your wish, Queen Esther? It shall be granted to you. And what is your request? Even to half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. He's repeating this again to her. He's so impressed with the second dinner as well. Then the Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it pleases the king, let my life be granted me for my wish and my people for my request. For we have been sold, and my people, I and my people, to be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated, all three, To be destroyed, to be killed, and to be annihilated. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would not, I would have been silent, sorry. For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss to the king. Then King Asherah said to Queen Esther, who is he? And where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, a foe, an enemy, this wicked Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. This is where dinner party turns awkward. (laughs) Spend this great time. We're drinking wine. We've got some good food in our bellies. What a great party this is. The king's like, wow, this is amazing. What do you want? What can I give you, queen? And she's like, well, how about you don't destroy, kill, and annihilate my people? What an awkward conversation to have with your spouse. (laughs) right like how does this go down like hey babe um would you mind not like killing me (laughs) would you mind not exterminating my people but she's like he's like who who did this who dared do this who who's gonna kill my queen's people and she's like him the only other guy in the room how awkward that would be so this fight like they're like okay now what's gonna happen like he's been accused trying to kill the queen and all her people. So the king arose in his wrath from the wine drinking and went into the palace garden. Apparently he needed a fresh breath of air. He's like, I don't know what's going on here. I got my number two guy who I really like. I got my queen who's really impressing me. So he goes out into the palace garden. But Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. So you can tell the king's really mad. So he's begging the queen. And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona, one of the eunuchs in attendance on the king, said, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, he is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king said, hang on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. That's the end of chapter 7 there. So everything kind of flips on Haman, doesn't it? Do you see the irony here? Do you see how funny this is? Right? It's all kind of sad for Haman by the same time. Like, what does a person who's trying to annihilate a whole people group deserve? right? And so the king returns and he's like, you're, you're, you're going to even abuse my my wife? Like, no. And they cover his head. And then he's like, hey, he was planning on killing Mordecai on these gallows that are seven stories tall sitting by his house. How about we just hang him on that? And he's like, yeah, hang him, hang him on that. Seven stories high. So what are gallows? Did a little research on it trying to figure out exactly what, what are these, right? We think of gallows as being kind of where we hang someone by a rope. Which the Persians did do sometimes. The Persians also impaled people a lot. They would, it would also could have been this, if you look at the original language, it could have been an impaling. Um, also, in 500 BC, Persians invented something that we all know very well Persians invented crucifixion. And this is about 30 years after crucifixion was invented. So there's a possibility that Haman wasn't hung or impaled, he was actually crucified. Which is really interesting. So, we talked about on Esther, uh, in- I always do that, on, on Esther. <laughs> on Easter, in Esther, we talked about how Esther kind of represented Christ in some ways as the Savior of-, of the people, right? But what's really interesting is that for this picture to be complete, it would be as though Esther stepped in and took Haman's place and was crucified instead. Think about that. Christ is the savior of the people. And he stepped in and he took the punishment. How powerful is that? You know, as I think about this, here, Haman is this evil man. Right? He's evil. He wanted to annihilate the Jews. He was, you know, sworn enemy with God's people. And then he's crucified. I think there's a beautiful image here because the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.20 that he who knew no sin became sin. You know, we all deserve to be hung on the gallows for our sins. We all deserve the punishment and the wrath of God for our sins, but Jesus steps in at that last moment, right? He steps in and he takes our sin. He who knew no sin became Came sin. He took our place. I think there's a powerful image there. And if we read the whole verse of Second Corinthians 5.20, it says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is substitutionary atonement. This is imputed righteousness. Wow, yeah, you guys can be impressed. I got my glasses on and I I use some seminary terms. (laughs) No, but this means that Jesus took our place. Jesus took our sin. And what he gave us out of that was he gives us his righteousness. This is the least fair trade ever. He took our punishment, our sin, when we were completely undeserving. And what he gives us is his righteousness. The Bible calls us co-heirs with Christ. Isn't that amazing? It's as though, it would be as though Esther would have taken Haman's place. I want you to imagine it that way. To think about what Christ has done for you. The Bible says that we were enemies of God, just like Haman was the enemy of Esther. He took our place on the cross, and he bore our sins and our transgressions. He took the penalty and rose again to offer us freedom, newness of life, mercy, and grace. So what is the application, knowing what Jesus has done for us? Paul says that we are ambassadors for Christ. Ambassadors for Christ. If you read into chapter 6, which we won't do today for time's sake, but I would encourage you, on your own time, read 2 Corinthians 5 and 6. Paul, in here, he really describes his ministry as an ambassador. Really, that he wants everyone to know the love of Christ. He wants everyone to know what Jesus has done for them. And what Paul does as an ambassador is he changes how he views people, right? A lot of times we, we assume things about people and we accuse people of things. Whether we do that in our own hearts or verbally, we do that a lot as people. But what Paul is saying here as an ambassador is he sees every person as somebody that Christ loved enough to die for. When you change your view of people to that, your heart changes for them. Now they're not the coworker you dislike at work. Now they're not the person in a community group that annoys you. They're not the guy in traffic who's cutting you off that you're like, Ugh, I would say so many words right now if I wasn't a Christian. It's none of those things. We see them as people who God loves so much that he sent his only begotten son to die on their behalf and to rise again and offer them his righteousness and his grace and his mercy. They're no longer annoying people. They're no longer... The people we dislike, they are people that God loves so much. And that's what ambassadors of Christ do. They view others the way that God would have us view them. As someone who Christ loved enough to die for, I am guilty of not seeing people that way sometimes. Are you? I am guilty of forgetting that God loves them, so that means I have to, too. Jesus said really difficult things like, love your enemies. Didn't he? We don't like to do that. But he says as ambassadors, that's what we're supposed to do. And then he goes on in chapter 6, and he talks about how he would take any sort of dishonor, any sort of pain, any sort of suffering that came along with being an ambassador of Christ because it was worth it to get the gospel out there. It's worth it. Most of the time, we are just being assumers and accusers instead of ambassadors. Ambassadors. So I ask you, are you an assumer, an accuser, or are you an ambassador of Christ? In every situation, in every moment of your day, you have really an opportunity to be an ambassador of Christ, to represent Him well, to tell others about Him, to show them the love of Christ. Yet oftentimes in our hearts, we're just sitting there assuming things about people, making judgments, and we're accusing people of things. And our accusations may be accurate or they may be false. Our assumptions might be accurate or they may be false, but it doesn't really matter because we're supposed to be people, viewing people through the lens of the cross. Viewing people as people who Christ loved enough to die for, to bear their burdens, to bear their sin. If we had a church that actually went out into the city, went out into our work lives, worked went out into all these places, and really viewed people that way, I think we would see a lot of really cool things happen. We went out and saw everyone as someone who Christ loves dearly. So on that note, let's pray. Heavenly Father, I repent of all the times I make assumptions about people or accuse people of things or um, view myself as higher than I ought, God. Lord, I pray that we would all repent of this. Whoever it may be, or um, if we do this on social media, if we do this in all these different areas of our lives, Lord, would help us to be ambassadors as you have called us, God. Lord, I pray that we are convicted to to instead love people because you love them, Lord. That we, um, as a church, Lord, as a church plant, we just want to see your kingdom grow. That's not going to happen if we um, are being judgmental, um, assuming things of people. It's going to happen when we start actually stepping into that calling Lord, that you have for us to be ambassadors of Christ, to be representatives of His love. Lord, would you would you just convict our hearts and encourage us to do that? In Jesus' name, I, I pray. Amen. Can you guys stand and worship with?